Welcome to episode 77 Whew. of UConn 360. That's the only podcast known to science that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. 77 big episodes in the can, as they say. Uh, we've got an exciting one for you uh, today as we come to you once again from the four corners of Connecticut and New York. Um, <laughs> my name's uh, Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts. Joining me are my colleagues, Tyler Silverio. Tyler, hi, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing all right, thanks. Uh, Julie Bartuka. Julie, what's the good word? Ah, welcome back, Tyler. Thank you. And Ken Best. Ken, how are things in the Mansfield Center Bureau? Well, there's activity outside as usual when we're recording. There are there are work folks around in trucks, but uh, hopefully we'll be able to mute them. We'll be able to mute them, we'll able to mute them I hope. <laughs> as we record this, it's uh, the first week of the spring semester, and... Um, it's a very uh, interesting time, of course. Spring semester is going to look a little bit like the fall semester because of the pandemic. But hopefully with the uh, availability of vaccines, the fall semester, that's next fall, will be a lot more familiar looking. That's my hope anyway. I hope so. We're closing in on a year of this uh, remote podcasting, remote work. Crazy. It's true. It's been a lot. But uh, you know what? We've kept up with the spirit of Dunkirk, as the British would say. <laughs> Persevering. So we have uh, we have some interesting stuff. We have a story about a multimedia project that Ken is going to tell us about. That is not directly related to the election per se, but is sort of inspired by the climate of our times. Is that right, Ken? It is. The Encounter series, which I think many people are aware of, is a program of the Democracy and Dialogues Initiative, which is dedicated to fostering unexpected conversations around divisive issues and obscure knowledge through the Dodd Human Rights Impact Program. On February 4th at 7.30 p.m., the Encounters program will be a virtual presentation titled Paradox in Political Tribalism. That will be facilitated by an animated short video produced by Yukon's Greenhouse Studios. The animation is By Our Love, and it is a collaboration between two of our award-winning faculty members in the School of Fine Arts, illustrator Coraline Dibler and jazz composer Earl MacDonald. By Our Love uses imagery of multicolored schools of fish swimming in groups, illustrating several biblical quotations representing a mix of commonly accepted Judeo-Christian virtues. The soundtrack is Professor McDonald's brooding jazz arrangements of the Christian hymn, They'll Know We Are Christians by Our Love. Professor McDonald says the idea for the animation began after he heard the hymn during a church service after the 2016 presidential election. He wanted to respond to the rhetoric from the campaign that was in conflict with teachings in the Bible, but did not deter white evangelical support for Donald Trump. He composed and performed an original work, but the audience response was not what he expected, and he decided to work on a jazz arrangement of They'll Know We Are Christians by Our Love and reached out to Professor Dibler. As they developed the concept for the animation, the professors had discussions with historian Brendan Kane, who helped to launch the Encounter series. He worked with them to plan the February 4th program. I spoke with Professors Dibler and McDonald about the process of creating the By Our Love animation. Uh, in my mind, I guess I was picturing this piece like, you know, you, you read the accounts of some of Stravinsky's masterworks, right, where he brought it into a concert hall and then there was a riot that ensued after its, after its playing. And, and I was sort of hoping for that kind of thing. But of course, you know, it was greeted with 
some polite applause and that was about it. You know, I got some nice compliments saying that was an interesting uh, arrangement, but I don't think anyone understood what it was about. Shortly after that point, I talked to Coraline about it and I said, hey, I have this idea for a School of Fine Arts Dean's Grant. I think if we could maybe put some visuals to this thing, that might to help reinforce some of the thematic content and help the audience to understand what it is that I'm trying to convey. What was in my mind wasn't anything like what we ended up creating. I was thinking maybe some kind of like PowerPoint presentation with a few illustrations, maybe some statistics that would emerge, just prompts. But then Coraline and I started to talk about this and what it could possibly become. Yeah, like I had been aware of the project that Earl had done with Deborah Dancy, where there were some animations created. They were rather abstract animations. They weren't particularly narrative. But I started to think about, well, creating animation like that's not in my wheelhouse. I've done animation, but not really that kind of an extended piece. But I thought we could do an animatic. We could do a really beautiful animatic, which is a series of still images. The camera moves across these still images to imply emotion, right? And we could do that. And so we started to work with that idea, but then we thought about bringing in other supporting players to really turn it into an animation. We brought a few students on board, someone from Art and Art History and Hal Tedeschi, and then Miles Waterbury from DMD to help with that. And then it became, you know, we just kind of evolved towards animation. Once we talked with Greenhouse Studios, it started to become possible that we could actually animate the whole thing. Give me the concise description of what people will see and hear. Besides just nine kick-ass minutes? Well, that's one way to describe it. (laughs) But we need more detail. That's an elevator pitch for sure. Yeah. Well, we could start with the fish aspect, right? I thought that was interesting because... As I mentioned, I didn't have a a truly artistic vision outside of the music. I I was talking about graphs, pie charts, and and, and statistics, quotes, you know, and a few images of Donald Trump misbehaving. So Coraline, somehow she started to think metaphorically. I thought this was pure genius, that she used the image of fish. Fish, as you know, are represented in within Christian culture because you see them on the bumper stickers, right, everywhere. So in that sense, it can represent them. But you see fish, they move in groups, right? We could think of them as tribes. And you could have opposing tribes and the ways that they move. So, Corlin, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. That's definitely where that came from. I was thinking about, all right, how do we make imagery that's going to actually bring people along into this dialogue? How do we make something that's not going to encourage the audience's distance from the beginning because we're talking about this way of thinking that already has people on opposite sides for lack of a better term how do we have a dialogue without automatically having people you know imagery that doesn't automatically have people line up on opposite sides of the fence already i I knew that we probably should stay away from images featuring people because you got to have something that's more metaphoric. And I started to think about, well, what kinds of animals travel in groups? What kinds of animals really exhibit kind of group behavior? And I thought about birds and fish. As I thought more about this, it kind of suggested to me that, yeah, in using fish, that would also then have that symbolic tie-in with biblical things. And it would really be uh, just from an artistic aspect, 
a way to visually create what would look like different groups through size and color and the way perhaps that they move and their shapes. You just have this infinite realm of possibility with fish in that regard. And so that seemed to be a vehicle that was going to really work well on all kinds of levels. And that's, that's what we went with. So if you want this, the very concise form of, of what they'll see, you know, at first it looks like an innocent film about fish <laughs> with this brooding music underneath, right? And then we intersperse some scriptural references and you start to, again, say, okay, so what, what are they saying here? And then you start, hopefully people will start to piece things together. Yeah, and I can add a little bit to that, too. As an illustrator, I'm used to working with text. I'm used to either, you know, creating text and working with images with that or having a text that's provided by someone, and I work in response to that with images. I had a lot of ideas, but I had trouble creating the structure for myself. And I know I went to Earl and said, I think I know what it is. I'm used to working with text as a partner with the images. Can we do that? And that's when we started to think about, yeah, let's pick out some scripture that really helps to support what's being said with the music. And that was how we started to go down that road. And once we got that far, things started to flow then from that point for me in terms of making the storyboard. And what was the process in selecting the scripture? Because you've got a pretty wide range of material here. And the way that you've broken it down on the website is by topic or by issue, so to speak. Earl and I had talked about what are the things that people are supposed to care about as Christians that they're, are seem that they're getting lost or ignored. And it was things like caring for the poor, being good stewards of the environment, you know, and, and those kinds of basic things. My brother and his wife are both Lutheran ministers. I had met with them to talk about, okay, we've got these themes. I'm looking for text that I, so I can respond to text. Can you help me with coming up with scripture that reflects these themes? And they provided me with a lot of starting points. I passed that to Earl and who's what much more of an expert with these things than I am. And he was able to look at those and add other things and find the correct iterations that we should use and help narrow down what which passages exactly were going to be the best fit for the music. The thing I'm most excited about I really is the conversation that's going to take place after it is shown. So often you, you release a, a new piece of music or a piece of art and they talk about it and great, that's it. And then it's done. But this has legs. You know, we can go on and present this and the conversation continues. We can take it all over the world if we, if we wish, you know? I'm excited. We actually designed it to run on its own as well, to be this thing where it's like a package that anybody who wants to work with this in their community could pick up and present in their own church, large or small, in their own community center, you know, anywhere somebody wants to have this dialogue about this paradox. They would be able to access the animation and the format that we're creating for it, the thought-provoking sort of dial- you know questions to go along with it. All of that that we're working with is designed to be able to be transposed to any place that wants to try to use it.
the event is going to take place uh, on February 4th, so there's time to participate. If you go to the website, www.buyourlove, and you have to have hyphens between buy and ourlove.com. So www.buy-our-love.com, and you can get more information and sign up to participate in the public portion because they've already done some of the prior work with the readings with uh, the interfaith community at UConn. You can also find out more on that if you go to the new look UConn Today at today.uconn.edu, where Ken has a story about it. UConn Today looks beautiful. It does. The people who redesigned it really did a fantastic job. It looks very clean. If you look at it on your phone, it looks perfect and modern. It's wonderful. Yeah, the, the mobile presence is very much improved from what we had before. Yes, absolutely. Now, we say at the start of every episode that this is the only podcast that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle, but... It is not the only podcast at the University of Connecticut. Certainly not. In fact, there's going to be a UConn podcast symposium in the month of February. We'll probably talk about that more as, as time goes on. I guess probably in the next episode because it's almost February. My goodness. But one of those podcasts is something that Julie is going to tell us about today. Julie, what is this podcast? Yes, we're going to do a little cross-promotion today. The Learning Community and First Year Programs Office last semester started the My First Year Story podcast. It's a team effort by a couple of staff members and a large group of students who serve as producers, editors, writers, videographers, designers, and promoters. I spoke with Tommaso Scotti, the first-year student who is the voice of the podcast, and he gave us some information on what the podcast aims to do, and then we're going to hear a preview of what it's all about. My name is Tommaso Scotti. I'm a freshman and a studio art major with a concentration in graphic design and printmaking. And I am the host of the My First Year Story podcast. We started this podcast to kind of help first year students feel more comfortable and more welcomed at UConn, knowing that mistakes and challenges along the way were completely normal and that everybody, no matter their success, their status, if their faculty or students deals with that. And it's kind of an engaging and witty way to give a Snapchat about what a first year student life is like at the University of Connecticut and how we're all sort of connected through these shared experiences of mistakes. And you've interviewed President Katsalaeus. What other kind of people have you had on or will you be having on this year? Yes, President Katsalaeus was a great interview. Actually, one of our first recordings was with Allison Detterman, who is also a freshman. She's an author. It was a really great conversation. We've interviewed Dr. Tom Long, who is head of the nursing learning community, David Rumet, in charge of the FYE program. But we kind of wanted to get a wide variety of faculty and students who all kind of had a piece of first year to help bring to the table. And we figured that those people would help would help students, especially students who aren't on campus, kind of get an idea of what, what it's like. And we're hoping that this podcast can help reach a lot of people to do that. Are you finding, is there anything like that all of these people have had in common? Is there, is there some thread that kind of ties all first year experiences together? Yeah, the kind of unifying thing is that we've all kind of goofed up at one point or another. What is super cool is as we're having these conversations and as they go back and think about it and are like, oh, yeah, I definitely did sleep through that 9 a.m. class or I did not do so well on that math final. But to them, that's like so insignificant now. And for like their whole journey, that was just like one one little piece. And so that's kind of a really cool and interesting thing that uh, I hope our listeners can see. 
But and so you weren't always just a YouTuber, which is cool. You also wrote a book about Go on the Lamb. Do you want to like talk about that and just like give me a little summary and like how that whole process was? Sure, sure. So I absolutely love to write, even though I'm an engineering student here at UConn. I actually am taking um, a creative writing course this semester, taking a junior level creative writing course. And I just love to talk about writing and I love to write. And I've been writing novels pretty much since I was like 13, 14 years old. Wow. And then over the over the break, the COVID break, I finally had enough time to sit down and format it and submit it for publication and all that kind of cool. stuff. So like, how was that submitting to publishers and stuff? Like, were yeah. they like, oh, you're a kid? Like, <laughs> why are you even talking to us? Like, did you have like a literary agent? Like, what was no, that like? No, no. So I did it myself. Mm-hmm. So I took... YouTube has everything. Right. But yeah, I, I just watched how to do it on YouTube and you can submit without an agent straight to Amazon. So my book's available on Amazon and they do a pretty baseline review process. I think it took 72 hours for them to look at my book and approve it. And after that, I just went on ebook and paperback versions. That's really cool. And so you have like a lot of success already. Um, What is your biggest fear when it comes to like success and notoriety? I know that's like a really big question. (laughs) Wow, that's existential. Right. I know we go from like, oh, what's Oklahoma like to like, oh, what are your biggest fears and success? Yeah, yeah. Um, I definitely spend a lot of time thinking about how I define success. Right. And so I, this is embarrassing, but I really love external validation. Oh. So when a YouTube video is doing well, or when someone posts on Facebook that they read my book, or, you know, when someone messages me, I liked your book, right? That makes me feel awesome. That makes me feel successful. And I think a lot of times I can get caught up in that trap of, oh, I am successful because other people like what I'm creating. Right. And I think, um, you know, as I get older, I I have been really trying to slow down and say, okay, well, I'm also successful because I do things that I enjoy and I produce content that I like to make. Yeah. And so I think one of my biggest fears is that I'm, I'll get lost in the external validation and kind of stop doing the introspection, what makes me happy, what makes me feel good. Yeah, and especially like, the creatives and being young mm-hmm. and being in the social media age, mm-hmm. it's so easy to be like, oh, this has so many likes, but we've just equivalented. Uh, that's not a word. <laughs> that's okay. I know what you mean. We've I know just what you mean. <laughs> equated the like button to, oh, somebody likes this versus yes. it's just a button on a screen. Yes. And so, I mean, that takes a good level of self awareness to have about yourself. But I agree. I yeah. think that success shouldn't be defined by other people, even though it's so easy for it to be. It's so easy for it to be. I remember I got my first dislike on a video. Because <laughs> like, my videos are are just really for my family. I don't, right. I don't get that. It's literally many just views you and they're YouTube. like Yeah, exactly. And so I remember like a week ago I got my first dislike. I called my mom. I was like, Mom, <laughs> You're like, can you this? believe this? Somebody disliked my video. She was like, it was your brother. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. He he made a mistake. He's changing it. <laughs> He's now. fixing it right now. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you talk about your out-of-state student. Mm-hmm. You your first year at UConn. So as an out-of-state student, what made you choose UConn versus other colleges? Like what what made you pick coming to Connecticut? Yeah, I think people are surprised when I say I'm an engineer because I love to do things that people don't typically associate things. with engineers, yeah. right? Like I like to write, I like to film, and so. Um, one of, but I do love engineering. Right. Yeah, engineering is definitely a passion of mine. And so I wanted to come to UConn because they had an accredited program for bioengineering, which UMass, which is my 
would be my state state school, school, right? Um, Does not. And I actually toured and I loved it. This was the first college I ever toured. So I'm super happy I'm here. Yeah, UConn is really great. I remember being sold on it. My friend who's a sophomore who goes here. And I think I've talked to every person who I've talked to here at UConn. I've told a story, but she was like, you can make a big school feel small, but you can't make a small school feel big. And I don't know if you felt that here, especially in your honors dorm and stuff like and being in different communities like that. But it's so true. Because you definitely have your smaller group of your smaller circle of friends, but you still see people. Oh, I know that person on the quad. I Mm -hmm. see this person in the dining hall all the time. And so it's that cool, weird balance of that. I always thought I was going to a city school. If you asked me last year, I would have been dead 100% set. And I think the the reevaluating of expectations yeah. and readjusting according to what makes the most sense in the moment is really especially covid wise too oh especially covid wise and also if you're going into engineering like when else are you going to live here when are exactly. you going to live in exactly. rural a rural place exactly. where you're going to be able to go horseback riding on trails exactly. like you're not yeah. able to do that in boston right right um, i'm happy i'm here thanks for listening to a short segment of the my first year story podcast We are reinventing the first-year narrative by having conversations around many relevant topics, like how UConn Nation is navigating the COVID-19 pandemic. By the time the town hall actually came along, it was no longer contingency plans, they were implementation plans. Yeah, they're like, this is happening now. Activism and how to be anti-racist. Because it's going to be a continuous struggle to undo the legacies of structural racism. And I think education is a pathway to that. And asking the big questions. So we're all first at something. What do you feel like you've been the first at and how has that impacted your experience? (laughs) You can take a second, take a second. That's a big one. (laughs) That is a big one. You can find my first year story on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, podbean.com, and at fyp.uconn.edu slash mfys. Very nice. We always like to help out and see the... uh... Yukon Podcast Extended Universe grow and we've got like a uh, a conglomerate go and there's a lot of people reaching out to us asking for advice on how to start them and so there's a lot of interesting uh, niche topical podcasts out there. We have become the virtual podcast central. <laughs> we need an umbrella organization. We do absolutely. A network podcast network. There you go. The Yukon Podcast Network or the Yukon yeah. 360 Podcast Network. Let's brand yeah. it appropriately. Yeah, let's do that. For uh, Tom's History Corner this week, I wanted to go back way, way back to the early 20th century and to a university tradition that has ended and probably for the best. Uh-oh. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> this was the freshman class banquet. Now, you're saying to yourself... Yeah, that sounds like a nice, pleasant thing. Banquet sounds nice. Yeah, you know, a, a kind of welcome to the university thing for freshmen. Well, at American universities uh, 100 years ago, there was a common sort of rivalry dynamic between the freshman and sophomore classes. And so they would have... At UConn, for example, they had a, a rope pull contest against each other. They had a football game they play against each other. And then there was the freshman banquet. The purpose of the freshman banquet was the freshmen were supposed to hold a banquet and the sophomores were supposed to stop them from holding the banquet. (laughs) And there were some rough rules. They had to do it during a one-month period in the fall semester. It had to be at least 65 miles off campus. At least 60% of the freshman class had to attend along with the class president. Back then, each class elected its own president. And sophomores could do anything to prevent it. 
As a one source I found described it, this was an annual event that broke more heads, smashed more furniture, wrecked more hotel dining rooms and <gasps> lobbies, and sullied the college's reputation more than any combination of previous That's class. Horrible. <laughs> Sounds like spring weekend as it yeah. used to be. <laughs> Some of the things that happened were sophomores set up roadblocks on Route 195 to stop any car from leaving campus. They cut telephone lines on campus to prevent freshmen from coordinating plans. They were seen carrying they were seen <laughs> carrying guns around campus. <gasps> there were car chases, there were multiple kidnappings, there was at least one daylight brawl in the streets of Worcester, Massachusetts. Oh my god, what years were these uh incidents? The, the first one appears to have been 1913 and the last one was 1921 after which President Beach of Beach Hall fame said, we really have to stop with the kidnappings and shootings and daylight brawls. Jeez. You think? This is what they did before the internet. Yeah, that's right. So they actually, in 1922, because Beach said no more banquet, they had an event called the Freshman Pig Roast. Now, the rules were similar, although a little more tame. The freshmen had to roast a pig weighing at least 50 pounds over a wood fire for at least one hour in the open air, and the sophomores had to prevent it. Weapons were banned. From that, which was good. <laughs> the use of an automobile was also banned. So it was a little more tame. One interesting thing is, as I was reading in the Daily Campus, or actually at the time the Connecticut Campus newspaper, and there was a plan to ban the participation of women students because they said things got more violent when the women freshmen and women sophomores were involved. Really? Yeah, they said they liked it to be Patty. more... Patty. Yeah. Well, or who knows? Maybe they're the ones with the guns. I don't know. <laughs> My God. But uh, so the pig roast also ended in 1925 when President Beach said, you know what? Let's just stop uh, hazing the freshmen. Yeah, seriously. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, sometimes we, we lament the decline of traditions from the past. This is a tradition I'm glad is safely back in the 1920s. That's amazing. And I love that you're digging these out for us because that's nothing I've ever heard of. Yeah, I'm trying to find some uh, pictures. There's a picture in the, uh, it's like a, a one-page photo spread in the 1922 Nutmeg Yearbook of what apparently was the last freshman banquet, but they don't, it's not like pictures of the mayhem, it's just kind of pictures of groups of students standing around, so it's not quite as exciting, but I'll see if I can find something a little more visual. Did you find any um, accounts of like how many times they were able to pull it off and how many times they were stopped? No, see, and I, that's the thing. I, I would like the chroniclers of the time to say who won. Right? right. That's the most important thing. Did the right. freshmen succeed or not? So the moral of the story is the past wasn't always better. You know? <laughs> not by the stories that you've been telling the last three years. <laughs> no, that's true. Well, and please don't start a new freshman banquet tradition. You know what? Just have a banquet. That would be nice. Yeah, a lovely banquet yeah. with 5,000. <laughs> yeah, it might, might be a little more challenging <laughs> than it was in 1913 when the classes had 50 people. Wow, that's wild. Yeah, so that's what we have this week. We do want to uh, give a shout out to Gino Oriema. Ken, you want to mention something, a, a milestone for Gino. Is that right? Well, Gino, uh, with the victory over Butler the other night, has gone into second place of all the women basketball coaches in terms of wins. He's now up to 1,099, although we would hope that there'll be another one by the time you listen to this because they're down in Tennessee this week and they have another game there. Uh, of course, uh, the late Pat Summit was the leader for many, many years. She had 1,098 wins. Tara Vanderveer, who's been coaching at Stanford for many years, 
uh, is in the lead right now with 1,105 wins. But really the significant thing that a lot of people are talking about is the wins are great, but if you compare the losses, Gino's lost fewer games than, than everyone. He's at 1,099 and 142. Wow. wow. Pat Summit uh, had 208 losses, and Tara has 254 losses. Now, of course, because of the length of time they've been coaching and the level of the competition uh, when they started, and they were all very young. Pat was only 22 years old when she got the job. Tara was 25. Gina was an advanced age of 31, uh, and he's been here for 36 years now. So either Pat, either Gino or Tara is going to retire at some point, probably at the top. And as he's been saying lately, he never thought he'd be coaching this long. He had no idea that he would be this successful. But he's got an almost 90% win record, and nobody's even uh, approaching that at this point. Most are in the high 70s. So we do have something very different and unique and special with, with Gino. Oh, for sure. Yeah, Very this, special. This team looks really good, too, this year. Well, they're freshmen. They're, they're very new. They're very young. So the real issue for the rest of the country is wait till they get better and they get more experience because there's six freshmen, actually a seventh, with the new student who graduated from high school, Sailor Puffenbarger. She's here. She's probably going to just practice and get used to things, but she's going to have a, a jump on the four that are coming in next year. Very nice. Very impressive. If you like what you hear, and my goodness, who wouldn't like this? You can follow us on Twitter at UConn Podcast. You can also go to at main underscore old to find uh, some pictures and, and other tidbits of UConn past. Recently published a makeout map from 19... 19- <laughs> see that 1922 it was a map they made uh, for couples who were looking for privacy in various parts of campus so it had things like you know lots of trees or good when it's windy that kind of thing oh my gosh my mom was really excited about the the four pictures you posted on the first day of classes she recognized i think the picture from the 60s maybe she thought that was something in the jungle it looked like her fairfield hall lounge you know, oh, okay. obviously it was taken before she was there, but she recognized it, she thought. So she was all excited about there, it. There's one current student who's a senior who recognized her mom in the picture from 1988. Oh, yeah, that's cool. You can also follow me on Twitter at TJ Breen. It's much less exciting than uh, <laughs> it, this is a very account. different experience. <laughs> it is a very different experience. Tyler, is there anything you would like to tell people about? Um, yeah, you can find my postings on at UConn Fasa on Instagram. That's uh. The Filipino American Student Association's uh, <clears throat> social media. Julie? I'm at Julie Bartuka on Twitter. You should subscribe to our podcast if you haven't done that in the past three years on <laughs> your favorite podcasting app. Ken, where can the good people find you? Well, apart from the Mansfield Center Bureau, at 91.7 WHUS in stores, Saturdays from 3 to 6 p.m. And of course, we have the rebroadcast of the Yukon 360 podcast Fridays at 11 o'clock on WHUS 91.7. Excellent. Thank you for listening, everyone. And uh, let's all meet back here next time. <laughs> <laughs>